0: And welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host each week. I'm honored to have now been approaching my 30th year being associated with Franklin Covey, the world's most trusted leadership company. Dr. Covey himself raised me kind of from a pup. Although he passed 10 years ago, he would be so proud of not just the Franklin Covey company and our impact in the world, but that we're now in our sixth year and our 300 plus episode of Shining, what is a very bright spotlight and platform for our podcast, not just on our own internal thought leaders, but on people that we think also have a narrative to add to the story. One of Dr. Covey's key principles was to not have a scarce mindset. But to have an abundance mindset. And sometimes that means friending the competition. Today, our guest is Jennifer McCollum. She is the CEO of Linkage, a well known global leadership development company, much like Franklin Covey. It is now a Sherm owned company. And perhaps most importantly, she is the new author of the number one new Amazon release out this week called In Her Own Voice A Woman's Rise to CEO. Overcoming hurdles to change the face of leadership. Jennifer McCollum, welcome to On Leadership.
1: Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Jennifer, you and I have been friends for many years. We've been in the same industry for a variety of decades. We both have a unifying passion around becoming better leaders ourselves, but also taking research and best practices and tools and processes to build and develop leaders. Before we talk about your own journey to the C-suite, Let's talk a little bit about who Linkage is and remind people who Sherm is, what the association there. Take a few minutes at my invitation and introduce everybody to Linkage.
1: Thank you, Scott. So Linkage is a global leadership development firm. As you said, it's been around for 35 years. In fact, In fact, Linkage was part of the birth of the leadership development movement. We had associations with Warren Bennis way back when that who helped birth our first leadership model. And it's gone through many twists and turns over the 35 years, I have had the privilege of running the company as CEO for the last five years. And in that five year transformation, we really started to narrow the focus of linkage into the areas where we believed we had a unique perspective, based on a broad set of data to solve a couple big problems in organizations. One was related to the advancement of women and how to accelerate gender equity and leadership. And the second was related to the role of inclusion in leadership effectiveness. We have a whole body of work on the role of inclusive leadership behaviors in driving effective leadership. And then the foundation of linkage, and this has been the consistent piece across the last 30, 35 years is what we call our purposeful leadership model, helping make leaders at all levels better, leveraging what we know in our data to be true. So much like Franklin Covey, we offer live digital virtual content and coaching and um, individual and organizational assessments. And we have the world's longest standing and largest women in leadership conference. And that happens once a year. A year ago, we were bought by Sherm, and that's just the the end of that story was transforming, taking the company to market as the CEO. And we are now one year into our integration as a Sherm company.
0: Jen, I mentioned in my opening, this is our sixth year of this podcast, and we've interviewed everyone. You can see the set behind me, whether it's Arina Huffington or Deepak Chopra or famous basketball players, NBA players, people that have survived tragedies and and lived to tell about it. And this isn't a book review podcast, but most of our guests have a book. Uh, Increasingly, as of late, I've been interviewing CEOs. Last week, we aired an episode with Ed Bastian, the CEO of uh, Delta Airlines. We recently interviewed the CEO of Hello Sunshine, the Wreath Weatherspoon content company that just sold for almost a billion dollars. And the reason I wanted to interview you is because you're unusual in a positive way in that you have a foot in both kind of camps. You are the CEO of a company, you're an operator, you're a visionary, you're an executive, but you're also a thought leader. You speak around the world on topics of leadership, mainly aimed at women in leadership. You're the author of this new book, In Her Own Voice. And I'd love today today to kind of dive into some of the insights in the book. So I've, of course, read the book. I have some questions that I think are interesting, and I want to start with your association with Magic Johnson. You mentioned you host uh, the world's largest women in leadership conference called WIL, W-I-L. It's in October in the fall every year. And, and I believe one of the conferences, Magic Johnson, was one of your keynoters, and you were either doing a fireside chat or something. And you, you write in the book a fascinating series of questions that were asked of him and his answers. I'm gonna ask them and answer them, and I want you to actually then debrief them for our listeners and viewers. As you were introducing Magic Johnson on stage and peppering him with questions, you asked him three questions. I believe it was you. Um, Now, this is Magic Johnson, right? One of the most iconic, not just uh, athletes in the world, but an entrepreneur, a guy that's focused on urban leadership and philanthropy and and had a remarkable career post-athletics. You ask him, did you ever want something but were too afraid to ask? And he answered, no. And then the question was, did you ever ask for something and not get it? His answer was, not really. And then you followed up with the question, did you ever walk away if you were denied? His answer was, no again. And I thought it was such an interesting opening to your book because you do draw... A, a parallel, some corollaries between how men and how women operate. We'll get deep into that in a few minutes here. What do you want the world to know about the insights teased out of this conversation with Magic Johnson?
1: So The reason we brought Magic Johnson to our women in leadership stage is because he is a fierce advocate for women. He has many senior executive women on his teams. He invests in women-owned businesses. He owns a women's basketball team. And we thought he had something to teach us uh, around being bold. And we call it in in our our language around advancing women leaders, one of the biggest hurdles women face is actually making the ask, asking for something we really want, as opposed to that watered-down version of what we think we deserve or what we think we will actually get. So we brought Magic Johnson to demonstrate how to do this. The challenge was Magic Johnson was delivering that message to us through his own lens as a man. And as he was talking about uh, being bold, making ass, not turning away, coming back if he was denied again and again, it was very quickly evident the women actually were laughing because we just couldn't see ourselves in Magic Johnson or in his story. And the reason I open with that story is because it helps immediately build awareness that while all of us across the spectrum of gender certainly face hurdles in our leadership as women advance in leadership the hurdles we face the challenges we face are unique and in many times higher so if you were to ask a woman have you ever backed down if you were denied every woman would say absolutely i retreat Um, men will tend to come back again and again. So the reason I like that story is because it nicely introduces an example of the hurdles that women face and magic didn't.
0: Well, I also enjoyed the story because I can relate to it, right? I I have that sort of bold personality. I've not thought of it as unique to my gender. You've proven in the book through your research and your expertise that it is often related to your gender. We'll talk more about that. I want to set some context You open the book and you talk about the types of biases that we all face, the types of biases that we're all guilty of or actually sometimes used for survival or for shortcuts. Not all bias is bad, by the way. We know that is true also. But you you identify one that, as I want, I think is worthy of contextualization. You call it externalized bias. Would you riff on that for a few minutes?
1: We make a very clear distinction in the book about external bias these are real biases that exist out there that that we don't necessarily certainly not individually have the potential to change and we distinguish that from internalized bias which i'll get to in a moment external bias is is real it's research to your point it's not always bad when it comes to gender bias here's a couple of examples so pay inequity is a very well researched bias whereby after the age of about 40, uh, white women will tend to be about half a million dollars short of similar roles held by men. Uh, black women will be about $800,000 and Latin women up to 1.4 million. So that's a real you know, pay and equity bias. Other biases are things like similarity bias. All of us tend to promote and support and develop people who look like us. And then another one is uh, For example, the promotion bias is, women tend to get higher performance scores, men tend to get higher potential scores. Oftentimes, promotion is based on your potential scores, which are a little bit more subjective, and we end up with more men and more senior levels of power. That's all external bias. So let me know if you wanna talk about internal bias.
0: Please, finish off.
1: Internal bias then is how we, and I use this in the context of women, have observed and experienced these external bias from childhood. And then we get into the working world and we tend to hold beliefs that may no longer serve us. And I'll use a personal example here. When I became the, when I was in the running to become the CEO of Linkage, I wasn't fully aware of the internal bias that I had. And they, the beliefs sounded like this. You can't be a CEO until you've been properly groomed. Uh, you can't be a good mom if you have a big job that's going to require you to be kind of a deferential, deferential leader, differential leader as a CEO, as opposed to my other big jobs as a GM and publicly traded companies. And the third one and my favorite one that I, I'm still working on is, you know, things are just done better if I do it myself. So these are beliefs that we will hold that will prevent us from either taking action or from achieving our leadership aspirations. Those are the types of biases we work on in our work with all leaders, but specifically women leaders in this context.
0: Jen, to clarify from me, your book is not a rant. Your book is not a diatribe on what is wrong. And your, your book actually is very inspirational and positive around what is true, what is factually true, and how do we improve that? for women and for men and by women and by men. What I found interesting is you have a a chart in the book that talks about gender stereotypes that create no-win situation for women leaders. Will you talk a little bit about what the research says around when men take charge versus when women take charge and how are they liked but disliked? Because I think it's indisputable I have probably countless examples of when I've seen that happen for me or against someone else, but I think it's a good uh, groundwork to lay for the rest of our conversation.
1: And I believe what you're talking about, Scott, is the double bind, and, and and I will tell you that in a moment. I actually want to go back to this book is not a rant, and this is what is so important to me. Linkage has been doing this work, gathering data on women in leadership and creating development experiences to drive Gender equity and leadership, not only for the women, but also for the organization, for all leaders. And we've been doing that for 25 years. This book is the evolution of what we know to be true, what we're seeing externally in the data, the literature, the experience, but critically then talking about the how. We know this bias exists. We know these challenges exist for women. We know they've shifted in the last post, you know, COVID and post-COVID years. How can we accelerate? the path for women to overcome the hurdles, and what's the role of the organization and the executives, men and women, to help them overcome the hurdles faster? So, the double bind. The double bind is a well-researched phenomenon that women are expected to carry out both the stereotype and expectations that all of us hold of leaders. And again, this is based on data that isn't our own, but all of us, regardless of gender, color, ethnicity, race, we, we perceive that a leader looks like a strong, strapping, handsome, white man, kind of like you, Scott. That, that, that's the perception that we hold of a leader. And the characteristics of the, those leaders are aggressive or ambitious, uh, competitive, competitive. So that's the stereotype we hold as a leader. But as a woman, we're also expected to fulfill the stereotype, the expectations that we all have of women, and that would be collaborative and kind and soft and gentle. And the challenge for women leaders is that we are seen as one or the other, but not both. So if we're too much like the stereotype of a leader, we may be perceived as too aggressive or too ambitious, or not likable enough. But if we're fulfilling too much the stereotype of a woman, we may be too soft, not tough enough for the big job. And so consciously or unconsciously, women leaders are constantly toggling between the stereotype of a leader and the stereotype of a woman and the stereotype of a leader. And when you layer in things like race or ethnicity, or sexuality, or any other form of underrepresentation, it becomes what's called the triple bind, making it even harder to lead.
0: Franklin Covey has a, uh, I'm going to guess, 35 plus year associate. Her name is Colleen Dahm, revered in the firm, cultural backbone of this organization. She serves as the chief operations officer. And I think she's uniquely been able to thread this bind, if you will, both as a highly respected, principled, competent leader and someone that stands her ground, uh, has great diplomatic skills, but is also kind and gentle and I think willing to speak up for herself. When you see those outliers of a female leader who has been able to thread that course, are there some commonalities? Have they had good mentors? Was it their parents? Were they just in a culture where they grew up so they assimilated some level of respect on both sides? It's a nuanced question, but when you see the leader, the female leader, that's been able to, I'll use that phrase again, kind of thread that needle. What usually are the ingredients?
1: So I would say experiences in a culture, perhaps like you have it, Franklin Covey, that allows them to be more fully authentic, to embrace their characteristics that are, you know, potentially more naturally female. I hate to, to paint gender stereotypes. And so for me, I'll use my example, there have been environments where I feel like I can bring both sides of that both the kind of the fierce, strong, competitive side of me, as well as the kind, authentic, empathetic, soft side of me. I think the bigger question, and so the the role of culture is is critically important. The role of experiences is critically important, where you can, you know, I've been in environments before where that wasn't so welcome. And I was assigned an executive coach because I wasn't collaborative enough. And And I write about that in the book because a man would not have been assigned an executive coach because he wasn't collaborative enough collaborative enough. In fact, it took both of us to be, you know, we were we were butting heads against two different functions. Um, But I was the one assigned the executive coach. So those types of examples um, are important to know what's the environment that we're creating. But here's the other thing. Why is it that men aren't encouraged to offer that soft, empathetic, vulnerable, authentic side of themselves? Right. All of us need to be operating at the appropriate times with that, you know, the stereotypes of both. And the, and the story I tell in the book, if you'll just humor me for a moment, I was accused way back in my you know mid 20s. in one of my first managerial roles at the Coca-Cola company, I was accused by an outside partner of being a cupcake with a razor blade inside. And that's the perfect articulation of the double bind, that soft, sweet exterior and that hard-biting, competitive, ambitious interior. And the call in the book is really, it's not that women need to be able to operate as both. It's that all of us as leaders, men and women, should be operating with both the cupcake and the razor blade.
0: Jen, I think what I like most about your book is it's a magnet, meaning I didn't feel backed into a corner to quote you as a white male powerful i think you said strong and handsome leader i did not thank you i did not feel at all shamed or back into the corner i felt you were drawing me in and inspiring me making it really introspective where have i done this well what could i do better and i also like the fact that your politics don't come out in the book at all you share a great story About the analysis of the US vice presidential debate a couple of years ago. And I'm going to invite you in a non political way, because I don't even know your politics. They don't come out, I don't care. But I thought you did a wonderful job of encapsulating what I think a lot of people saw and maybe some missed. Would you rewind, I don't know, what it would be like almost five years ago now, four years ago, and talk about the insights that came out of the then vice presidential debate with then vice president Mike Pence? And then, I believe, U.S. Senator Kamala Harris, now the U.S. vice president. Talk about what happened and what we can draw from that.
1: Absolutely. And this was—I uh, was watching it with my son, which is the the, the interesting ending of the story. And um, it, you know, completely apolitically, I was mesmerized by the body language and the interaction between the two. Well, first, so- make
0: sure you get to the fly, because I actually— was obsessed with the fly.
1: Okay, well, if, if you remember, that, that debate um, was most uh, memorialized by the fly that landed on Mike Pence's head for, I don't know, a full 90 seconds. And so that was hard to look away from. But when that was before or after, what was fascinating was Kamala Harris, who is biracial, identifies as a black woman. So now you have the triple bind, right? She's a leader, a woman, and she's a, a, a woman of color. And watching her kind of contort herself as Mike Pence repeatedly, as happens in many debates on both sides, repeatedly interrupted her. And in the book, I think I, you know, it was something like not quite two times more, but yes. almost yeah. that the interruptions. And so I was watching her hold her body, trying to figure out, you know, I've got a smile and I had to be this likable woman, you know. I, and I also have to be strong and make sure that I get my points across. And so she had this fixed smile on her face and over and over and over was saying, if you could just let me finish, I, 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 please, I'm I'm trying to make a point if you. And the, so the smile and the trying to be direct and Mike Pence just continuing to interrupt her. The fly was helpful. Um, And then, you know, for the for that triple bind there for especially for African-American women, the stereotype of the angry, the angry black woman. So she was trying to be very, very kind and respectful and yet direct. Um, And it was just so fascinating. And I said later to my son, um, what did you think of of that debate? And um, he said, I don't know. Um, I don't find Kamala Harris to be that likable. And of course, that's a trigger and, and, and for me. And I said, well, tell me more about that. Um, and so he, you know, he described this kind of like trying to, trying to, to be all things to all people or he, his perspective was she's not that likable." So that I went into this description of the double bind and the triple bind and how challenging it is for women leaders. And it was a real moment for my son, who must have been 17, 16 at the time, to start to learn about the very unique challenges that women, especially in this case, women of color face.
0: Jen, I want to use eight minutes and do a power round. And I want to talk about what are uh, loosely the eight hurdles that women face, not only women, men face these as well. I can identify with some of them. And I'm going to pitch them to you from your book, and I want you to give me one minute on each of them. Uh, The first hurdle... Our overarching hurdle that women face toward advancement you call the inner critic. Give us a minute on that.
1: The inner critic is the voice in our head that is so loud, obviously very uh, uh, often very critical of ourselves. It can be critical for others too, but the voice in our head that may prevent us from taking action or achieving our dreams. The voice in the head for women will tend to sound like I'm not good enough or I don't deserve it. Um, I shouldn't speak up. I shouldn't ask for that raise or promotion. Based on that inner critic, it will tend to shut us down earlier in our career and maybe prevent us from being all that we can be.
0: The next one's internal bias. We talked about it beforehand. Is there anything you might expand on as it relates to internal bias being a hurdle for women?
1: So I'll I'll get to the action and that's what I was about to finish there. The action step for the inner critic, the inner critic turns into your biases. Those are the beliefs that you're holding about yourself that may not be true. So for me, the belief that I can't be a CEO unless I'm properly groomed was my internal bias, but it came from a lot of inner critic noise that was believing that I wouldn't be ready to be a CEO for X number of years or X number of experiences. The way to get around both of those things is to get really curious and to pause and to ask yourself, or have others help you, ask yourself, is this belief serving me? Is it true? And can I disrupt that belief and hold it and test it a little bit more?
0: The third bias you mentioned is that of clarity, not not bias, hurdle, you mentioned as clarity.
1: This is one of the, the single largest hurdles for women. And this is when you ask, what is it that you want? Not your team, not your organization. What do you want in this case, in this context, with your career? If you were to paint a picture for me two, three, five years out, what would it look like? Women tend to say things like, I've never thought about that. Or, I don't possibly have time to think about myself. Or, the worst one is, I don't wanna put it out there in the world because if I don't get it, it would be worse than not declaring it at all.
0: The recognized hurdle of proving your value.
1: The number one hurdle in our data, and we measure this, by the way, through self-assessment and 360 assessments. We've got 150,000 leaders in the database. It's the number one hurdle every single year. And the proving your value stems from the belief that if I put my head down, and I work harder and harder and harder and say yes to more and more and more, which gets impossible as not only as you rise up in the ranks, but as you start adding complexity to your life, it may be children, it may be elder care, it may be community involvement. You can't do it all and women tend to put their head down hoping that if they work harder, they will become noticed. They will get the promotion, they will get the raise. That usually doesn't happen. So we encourage women once they're clear on what they want to start being very strategic about what they say yes to, what they say no to, and how to prioritize their work, and inspire others and delegate.
0: Speak to the hurdle of recognized confidence. It's a term I've not heard before.
1: This is one that has shifted in terms of our perspective in the last three or four years. We used to tell women, or help women, overcome their confidence problems, overcome their imposter syndrome problems. We don't do that anymore. Now we teach them that Competence is important, but you need to be recognized in that competence. And so the word recognized confidence is very intentional. And that is you women can learn how to self promote more effectively. You can learn how to appropriately shine a light on yourselves so others see you and your competence. And we also teach them if you're not ready, if you feel like an imposter, if you feel like your confidence just isn't there yet, then phone a friend, surround yourself with people who will lift you up and who will shine that light on you. Over time, that creates not only internal confidence, but confidence that others recognize in you.
0: Three more hurdles, speak to branding and presence.
1: This is also one that's shifted over the last few years. For many, many, this has been going on for a long time, kind of decades in the women in leadership space, we've helped women build their brand. What do you want to be known for? And do people perceive you as you want to be known? You want to make sure you find out through appropriate feedback, formal or informal. But here's what shifted. Women for for many, many decades were creating brands that would allow them to assimilate to whether it's dress or talk or act like the leadership majority so they would fit in. And COVID, the the huge blessing of COVID with work from home, the explosion of Zoom and virtual environments helped level that playing field so that women could emerge as creating brands that were more authentic to who they were. Now we talk about if you can't be who you are, where you are, perhaps change where you are and not who you are. Mm -hmm. And I can't take credit for that quote. It's Caroline Wonga, the CEO of Essence, who was on our stage last year. And I've just Held it tightly.
0: Well said. Uh, making the ask.
1: Making the ask is, again, one of the top three hurdles for women aligned to uh, both clarity and proving your value. So this is number three. And making the ask is helping women negotiate more effectively for themselves primarily, but this also extends to their teams. Women tend to approach negotiation or making ask. It could be about money and title. It could be about time and resources and flexibility as well. They tend to ask for what they believe they can get or what they deserve. And in almost every case, they are going to the table with less than an ask than their male counterparts. This is something we actually can learn very, we can learn a lot from men here. So making the ask is really helping women understand what it is they really want, building a business case, gathering the appropriate data, and then approaching the ask, depending on the stakeholder, with the right environment and the right timing and the right approach. There's tons of stories in the book because as a CEO, I have been making a lot of asks for the last five years of our private equity board.
0: Finish us off with the last hurdle, networking.
1: Women are fantastic at curating a network. We we actually, surface and create relationships beautifully. Women are not so good about activating the network. So when a woman is clear about what she wants and she knows what the ask needs to be, the next question is, well, whom do you need to ask? A woman will often say, oh, I can't do that. You know, that person doesn't have time. That person, you know, I can't approach that person. And then I'll turn the tables. And I'll say, well, well let, wait a second. If that person made an ask of you, would you be willing to help? And the answer is always yes. So for women, it's about how do you build and encourage you know, their, their support and willingness to find the people who they need and actually ask them for that, whether it's a favor or whether it's the network or whether it's the business. Now, you got to appropriately balance that as well because um, you need to give before and more than you receive. Women don't have the giving problem, they have the receiving problem.
0: Jen, I'm kind of fixated in a positive way in this concept of recognized confidence because I think it's a difficult challenge for a lot of people to, to tread that fine line between being self-aggrandizing and self-promotional, which can lead to becoming accused of being a narcissist or a megalomaniac. And then, of course, the opposite end of the continuum is someone that retreats and, and has a victim paradigm and wonders why they're now a martyr, you name it. You share a great passage in the book, and I want to read it. And then I'm going to ask you to talk about how do all of us thread this needle. You say, I love the example of Melissa Turk, a product manager on our linkage team who joined us a few months before our all company offsite in 2022. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we hadn't been together in person for 28 months, so we wanted to integrate some icebreakers and team-building exercises throughout the agenda. Melissa volunteered to help and told her boss, quote, "'I'd love to help. "'I'm very good at creating innovative team exercises "'and have led really well-received openers "'in the past,' end quote." That was a straightforward sell promotion but it got the executive team's attention and made us comfortable she could get the job done. More importantly, it secured recognized confidence in Melissa by the executive team. A few months later, at our semi-annual talent calibration conversation, her role in the offsite surfaced as proof of Melissa's early contribution and capability. I see you as, a, as such a recognized authority on this topic men, women alike, remind us what you see as best practices to model recognized confidence without going too far in one direction, calibrated, obviously, for the culture all of us are in. Some cultures punish (laughs) self-promotion, some reward it, some don't even think about it. Give us a couple of minutes about how each of us might be a little more thoughtful on what's the right balance for us.
1: I want to I want actually start out by saying that when women self-promote, it tends to be in the context of their teams. And, you know, look, in, in the kind of inclusion era that we're in, I love deference. And men and women all do this. It's not about me. It's actually about the team. The challenge is you want to make sure this gets back to branding as and presence as well. You wanna make sure that you are recognized with the skills that you either want to continue to develop or you want to be known for for your next role. So the first thing I say is, look, when you're looking at self-promotion, make sure that you are promoting appropriately, we'll talk about that in a moment, Align to the areas that you wanna be well-known for. That's what I love about the Melissa story. And this again, Melissa is a mid-manager in our organization. This can happen at any level in the organization where she really carefully ensured that we were aware of her strength of her superpower at the appropriate moment. So we put her in a role to shine. And then she was recognized for that in the performance management process. That's a beautiful example. We don't want to be self promoting in areas where we don't want to be well known. So as an example, and many women take on the role of, you know, I will be the note taker or the meeting organizer or I will clean up after. You, You want to make sure you're promoting in those right areas. Secondly. You are correct, it needs to be a balance. And I, I, I often tell the story of Kristen on my team. We've been working together for a long time, probably 13 or so years. I know now to expect around once a week, she will find a beautiful way. It'll be in a conversation, a text, or an email. Well, she'll let me know what she's been doing, um, even if it's a problem that she solved, the role that she played in it, even if it's in the context of the larger team, and how it kind of aligns to what I know she wants to grow into. So as an example, she was on the, uh, the uh, stage at a recent Sherm event. I know she's trying to build her capability in the keynoting area. She sent a beautiful text with a selfie saying, I rocked the keynote stage. Someone told me that the immediate post-session scores were among the highest that they've seen. It was a celebration for her and with her, and it told me she's doing a great job in the area she wants yeah. to grow into.
0: Yeah. I think it's an area that a vast majority of associates on the rise could think about intentionally, deliberately calibrate. How do I want to self-promote in the areas in which I want to be seen for? How will that be received? Not, not well all the time based on the company's culture or if the leader is perhaps threatened by you. It's, it's an important, I think, part of everyone's career to be deliberate and intentional about it, and to calibrate as needed. You know,
1: so- can, I, can I add one thing, Scott, to that? Please. Because the other side of this, and this is this is for all leaders listening to this podcast. There are two sides to this. One is how you know you you are going to think about your self-promotion. But the other is if you're not comfortable. You know, maybe you're new. Maybe it's not quite the right culture, and you're concerned about how you're going to be perceived. Maybe you're not ready uh, because you don't see it in yourself the role that all of us can play around those, those, those workers or leaders at any level to help shine a light on them. And I'll give you an example from my own life just a week ago. You know, I was doing a, a book launch event and I was doing it with my peer, George. And you know, so- someone came up to George that, that they knew and George turned around and introduced me and said, you need to meet Jennifer. She is such an exceptional and inspiring business leader. And again, for this you know, potential client you know, in the context that we were in, that was a perfect example of someone shining a light on me. I wasn't going to say that about myself, obviously, even if I did agree with it. Um, so that's an example. How do we shine a light on others?
0: Well, I think you do that in the book. Uh, as I finished the book, I read the acknowledgments and I counted them up. And I think there was 35 people that you call out, most of them with a full paragraph. What was their role in lifting you? What was their role in coaching you? What was their role in persevering by your side? And many of them are men, they're not just women. Is there a particular man in your professional life, a male, that has become a model for you? Dr. Covey used to always say, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. Is there someone that you've seen Because I hope this book is read by men as much as women. Your book is going to crush it. You can see this book has a long tail to it. It's already a number one bestseller on Amazon. Is there a male in your life that's acted as a mentor, a champion, an ally, a coach, a sponsor? You would say, here are three or four things he did. Gentlemen, watching and listening today, be more mindful of that. Go do more of that.
1: This is my favorite story, and it's in the networking chapter of the book. And it's it is he is a mentor, he has also become a sponsor. And just the distinction is a sponsor is willing to use of influence and political capital to help someone else. So again, gender agnostic here. Um, and it's a story of Alan Malali. And you may know Alan as the former CEO of Boeing Commercial Aircraft and of the Ford Motor Company. And he was the CEO in the in the reign of the Great Depression and 9-11. And he has led companies through exceptional crises, massive companies. I watched him hold court with a group of about 150 leaders back in 2019. And all I could think of was I need Alan to help me accelerate my own transformation as a CEO, as we take linkage through its transformation. But why would he help me? And so this was a combination of both making the ask and networking, and it was hard. Um, I approached Alan at a you know at a time where I wasn't feeling especially confident. I had I had come from the gym. I wasn't dressed uh, you know in in my business clothes. I hadn't prepared how I was going to approach him. But there he was standing at the toaster in the Hyatt Regency uh, at the Continental breakfast in the club uh, the club floor. So I I sauntered up to him and I explained why he inspired me with his he calls him the working together. Um, management system and what I thought I could learn from him as I applied it to Linkage, but I wasn't sure exactly how to do it and might he be interested in walking me through it. Scott, I thought it was going to be one conversation. Alan took me under his wing, taught me how to use his business plan review, which I had been using now for the last three and a half, four years at Linkage every single week. He then Uh, volunteered during 2020 to do a leadership podcast with me. He became a legend in leadership on our linkage stages. He told his executives uh, and potential clients and prospects about the fabulous work we were doing at linkage. He is in the book. He has cheered me on every step of the way. He answers every text, every email. So he's a perfect example of an ally. He rides alongside of me as a mentor. He helps me based on his experience and a sponsor, he, opened door, he opens doors that I couldn't get into on my own, and I will forever be grateful to Alan.
0: Fantastic story, wish we had more time. I wanna end with a quick call to action from you. If you had to sum up two or three points that you hope women take away from this book, whether it is as a sponsor, a champion, an ally, a mentor, a coach to other women or men in their life, or just women on the rise, your boy, your book is titled in her own voice, a woman's rise to CEO, uh, pull the cream to the top. What are a couple of points you want all the women, the moms, the sisters, the aunts, the grandmothers, the CEOs, to take away from this today as they're coming home tonight to their daughters and to their book clubs, to their pickleball parties, to their whatever it is that they're doing. Perhaps they're serving on city commissions, you name it. What do you want them to be thinking about as a takeaway from this podcast.
1: And I think it's important to know that, you know, a woman's rise to CEO is, is basically aspirational, but it's not, you know, indicative that every woman wants to rise to, to CEO. Course. So it's the, the aspiration for this book is for any any woman who aspires to advance in her career and life and for any executive or allies, this is men or women, who aspires to support them. And that's that inclusive nature of the book. So here's what I want all the readers to know. One is what it takes to be an exceptional leader is the same across the spectrum of gender. This is not about fixing women. Women are spectacular leaders, and that's a whole separate podcast about what we're seeing in our leadership data and kind of the gender differences of where women really, really thrive. So this is never about fixing the women. This is about building awareness, both the women themselves, but also the organizations who support them, that, you know, our path to leadership is different. We do face hurdles that are a little bit higher and harder to overcome than men have traditionally faced. We all need to be aware of those. And the book is very actionable about how, stories to illustrate and then how to overcome them. But then there's this last piece, and that is important for all men, women at all levels, is we need to seek out organizations where we can thrive. Look at the culture, look at the talent system, look at the executives, their commitment and their action. Um, Look at the development. And we need to be a lot more selective about uh, choosing to spend our time and our life at organizations where we can be celebrated and not tolerated.
0: Jennifer McCollum, CEO of Linkage, a Sherm company. Your new best-selling book released just this week called In Her Own Voice, A Woman's Rise to CEO, Overcoming Hurdles to Change the Face of Leadership. Well-earned success. Congrats. I know you are speaking around the world, and I'm sure companies will be clamoring to reach out for counsel and coaching and keynotes as well. Best of success to you on what I no doubt is going to be an amazing year plus ahead of you as your book sweeps organizations by a storm thanks for joining us today thank you scott and we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership